You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom, a podcast that breaks down great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn. We've got a great episode for you guys, but first, here's what you need to know. I'm Jonah McKeown, and here are some of the week's top stories. Blessed John Henry Newman could be canonized as a saint as early as next year. The Vatican last week reportedly approved a second miracle attributed to Newman's intercession. The miracle involved the healing of a pregnant American woman. Now, a commission of bishops must approve the canonization, and the Pope himself must declare Newman a saint. Investigators issued a search warrant Wednesday on the chancery offices of the Archdiocese of Galveston-Houston. The district attorney's office is seeking documents related to a priest arrested in September on four charges of indecency to children. The archdiocese is reportedly cooperating with the investigation. And finally, a scientist in China has claimed to have produced the world's first genetically edited babies. The researcher claims he altered embryos for seven couples, resulting in one twin pregnancy. More than 100 scientists have condemned the research in a letter released this week. The scientists warned against a, quote, Pandora's box that they said could pave the way for a complete disregard for biomedical ethics. The technology previously had been used only on adult humans and other species, and only to treat deadly diseases. Be sure to visit catholicnewsagency.com for many more stories as well as the latest news and analysis. Two weeks ago, we were at the Bishops' Conference meeting in Baltimore, where bishops were torn between calls from U.S. Catholics for a strong response to the sexual abuse crisis and a surprise directive from the Vatican to suspend a vote on concrete initiatives until after a February meeting with Pope Francis. Today, I'm going to talk with a few of our editors about what's happened since Baltimore. But first, I'd like to visit something that happened last week. As many of you have read or heard, the Bishop of Madison, Wisconsin, Bishop Robert Morlino passed away somewhat unexpectedly after having a heart attack right around Thanksgiving. And I'm joined right now by uh, a friend of CNA and the Chancellor of the Diocese of Madison, William Yalali, to talk with us a little bit about uh, Bishop Morlino's unexpected death and uh, about the man that he was. William, thanks for being with us. Thanks, J.D. It's great to be here. I wish that we're under different circumstances, but um, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, so do I. And first, I'll just say, of course, that we're all sorry for your loss. And we've been praying not only for Bishop Morlino's soul, but for you, for your family, and for the the priests and the people of the Diocese of Madison. So walk us through the last couple of days. What um, what happened and what was the experience like for you? Yeah, thanks, J.D. The experience was, was challenging, but at the same time, it was filled with tremendous blessings. Um, and, and I don't say that in, in a way of, of just being trite and pious. Um, I, I can't I've never be- accused you of being this. <laughs> I, I can't believe really um, just the way the Lord has worked through this for me, you know, starting with the fact that uh, he had asked me to take him uh, to his tests uh, on, on the Wednesday um, when, when things kind of started. And that wouldn't necessarily typically be the case. Um, I help him out with a lot of his, um, his medical stuff anyway, but um, he knew I was keeping busy here in the office, but but on Tuesday he called me and he said, "I want you to take me tomorrow." And this was just a routine kind of medical test, is that right? Yeah, you know, JD, he he had been uh, slowing down in recent months, and there was something going on. We we couldn't quite get to the bottom of it, 
So the doctors started a whole spate of tests, and he had been going through those little by little. Uh, some people have commented to me that they, they noticed his voice was absent in Baltimore, and, and that's because he just really he couldn't make the trip. And that was hard for him, but he was certainly praying from here. But, but things were uh, difficult in the last, uh, the last few weeks, and he just didn't have the energy, uh, which anyone who knows him knows he was a man of, of tremendous energy and joy. Um, we went in for the appointment, and um, in the middle of it, his heart stopped. And the staff at the hospital did a fantastic job of reviving him, and um, they, uh, they put him under a, a, what's called a hypothermia protocol, brought his temperature down, um, and put him under some sedation. And then we just kind of watched to see um, what was going to happen. But then on Saturday night, uh, after the bishop had had some visits, um, his heart rate started changing and his breathing started changing. And so there were a few of us that gathered around um, <clears throat> him. Um, we started praying um, even harder. And Monsignor Bartilla anointed him again and, and offered him the apostolic pardon. Um, we spent some more time in quiet prayer, all kind of holding on to him. And, um, and one of the other priests said, I, th I think we should pray the litany of the saints. So he led us in the litany of the saints. Um, and I forget, I always forget this. Um, and I've experienced it, but when you pray the litany of the saints for, for the dying in that situation, rather than saying, you know, St. Catherine, pray for us. St. Catherine, pray for him. And so we were going through oh, the litany of the saints in that way. And um, right in the middle of it, his numbers just started gently decreasing until they were nothing. Um, and um, I was smiling that, and I can't explain that. Um, but I, I, I was just filled with gratitude looking at him and I was holding his right hand and I remember thinking how many consecrations of the Eucharist, how many absolutions, how many ordinations were given with this hand. And I got to play some small part in helping to support that. And I was just filled with gratitude. And, um, you know, from, from all we can tell on this side of the veil, uh, that was a very happy death. And so we're tremendously grateful for that. And, and I was just so grateful to be, to be there and be part of it, even as my heart broke, um, to lose such a great friend and uh, and father. Well, well, let's talk about that. Thank you for for sharing that. Bishop Morlino was um, you you knew him professionally, serving as the diocesan chancellor, and also personally. I know he was a friend to you and to your family. Mm -hmm. What kind of a man was he? What kind of a friend was he? What what will your family remember as you think about him? To my family and, and to me, he he really was that father. Um, and to my kids, I, you know, I've got five small kids, and he really was sort of a third grandfather. Um, our, our youngest son is named after uh, his his three grandfathers. So my dad, my wife's dad, and and Bishop Morlino. He was tremendously warm. Anyone who met him couldn't help but notice that. People have this image of him as this this uh, strong, outspoken warrior, and he was that. He spoke the truth. But he always said, we have to speak the truth with love, and we have to speak the truth with a smile on our face and joy in our hearts. And he really was that, for me, an unbelievable example of mercy lived out individually with each person he encountered. He gave them the truth. He called them to the heroic, 
constantly, but he did it with love. That's that's really that that's really beautiful, and it's a it's a beautiful lesson, and it leads to something that I've been wondering about because in the diocese of Madison, Bishop Morlino was responsible for um, a, a great growth in the number of priestly vocations, and I know that he was a, an excellent fundraiser and and uh, had a capital campaign that. Uh, for seminary growth that well exceeded its expectations, which usually means not only that people support the cause, but that they support the person. But um, but also nationally, you know, he did have a reputation. There were a lot of people who were critical of him and, 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 and the way that he approached moral questions. Those perceptions, where do you think they came from? He was, and he, he had this issue from the moment he got to Madison. He was first and foremost, he was a teacher and particularly a philosophy teacher. And so a lot of times he he would jump into shorthand um, on using terms that he took for granted that everybody knew what he was saying. So that was a bit of a hindrance sometimes for him. One of the, uh, the scenarios that's brought up is that in his initial press conference in the diocese, he talked about how uh, it's become clear that the people in Madison have a, a relatively high comfort level with with relatively no public morality. That was not to say that was interpreted as all these people are immoral heathens. It's not at all what he meant. He was talking about public morality and common sense of norms that came from the natural law, uh, and the sense that you know the natural law had been lost. That's what he was really speaking to. And when he got the 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 the, uh, the feedback on that, um, it became clear that he had a lot of teaching to do about the natural law. And but there was. There was the teaching, charity and clarity, and then there was the pastoral side. You know, he was a lion from the pulpit and a lamb in the confessional. And I saw him on many occasions dealing with people that supposedly he hated and had no time for with unbelievable love and compassion and charity. And he truly wanted for them to see and to meet the person of Jesus Christ risen from the dead and to be changed by him. Not to stay where they were, but to be changed by him, and, and that was that's what drove him. Bishop Morlino's funeral will be next week, and what do you think um, people will will need now in the diocese, um, and how will the, how will the diocese continue to to move forward after after the death of Bishop Morlino? If there's one thing that that people who knew him knew, it's that he recognized it wasn't about him. He was he was a magnetic uh, personality, no doubt, but always pointing to the one he served. There is nothing that he gave us that is that is not contained in the tradition of the church uh, and in the, in the teachings of the church. And um, he would say simply, go to the church, remain in the church, remain in love in the church. And that's all he wanted for us. So in a sense, you know, we, we go forward uh, confident that all he gave us is precisely what we're called to do, and and that will remain unchanged. But but um, it won't be as fun. It won't be as fun without him uh, cracking us up and keeping things joyful and joy filled. Well, thank you. Those are good lessons, not only for the diocese of, of Madison, but for all of us and all of us here at CNA Newsroom and our our listeners. And and I personally will continue to be praying for you and for the diocese and for the repose of Bishop Morlina's soul. William Yalali, Chancellor of the Diocese of Madison, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, J.D. Great to be here.
For our next segment, we're going to take you to California, where folks are picking up the pieces after two wildfires that have killed nearly 90 people, destroyed at least 14,000 homes, and burned through an estimated 251,000 acres, all in less than two weeks. CNA's Jonah McKeown spoke with Jim Collins, who is overseeing the recovery process for St. Thomas More Parish in Paradise, Northern California. Here's some of their conversation. So, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about what has been going on with St. Thomas More Parish there in California? Uh, about two weeks ago, we were basically burned out of paradise. Uh, the parish itself lost all the buildings except for the main church. The church is standing but with smoke damage. The uh, parish hall that was right next to it was totally burned out, and all of our infrastructure, offices and such were gone as a result of that. Uh, also, we had an, an old rectory and a new rectory that were destroyed in the process. There's a, an adjoining school that is still intact, uh, and we hope to be able to use that as offices. At the present, uh, we cannot even get back to the, uh, the parish site because of the uh, restrictions on the fire up there and all the rain that we've had in the last couple of days. The parishioners themselves and anybody else can't get in. Most parishioners still can't even get back to their homes, whether they're standing or not. Uh, we haven't been able to, to pick through the ruins, so to speak, to see what's, what, what else is left. Uh, how have the parishioners been taking it? Um, you know, what, what have you been able to do since this devastating fire happened? I'm in a call center right now where we, we have volunteers uh, making phone calls to everybody on the Paris list. There were about 800 uh, on the Paris list. We're able to, to um, make phone calls and make connections with about 20% of them because the rest of them lost their phone service and most of them just had um, landlines and so that we just hear a buzz sound. Um, outside of that, other parishioners have contacted us here in the Chico area where we're located and we've gathered a few times at dinners or, we, or at mass and at those occasions we usually maybe have 100 to 120 people show up of the, of the 800 and so we've uh, made contact with those folks. We have um, an ongoing expectation of about 80% actually totally burned out of their homes and maybe 20% standing. About 80% across the board have lost, um, lost everything. The, the bishop of the Diocese of Sacramento, Jaime Soto, sent a letter to the parishioners of St. Thomas More um, just to, to encourage them and uh, to, to, to tell them that the Newman Catholic Center in Chico will be providing the regular Sunday Mass. Uh, so, Jim, what would, you, what would your community like to do next, and how can people listening help you? As we speak, I'm located right at that Newman Center here in Chico. That's kind of our base of operations. Uh, where we'd like to go from here is to direct the donations that have come in to those most in need. And so we worked out kind of a triage where we identify those most in need who would normally be those who did not own homes but were living in rentals that were totally destroyed and had have uh, no insurance uh, compensation coming. Those also living in uh, trailers or trailer parks, and those that's a substantial number of our parishioners because it's kind of a low-income area up there in Paradise, and we need to uh, help them because they many of them also do not have insurance. Up on the higher end are the folks who own homes and are being taken care of fairly well with the insurance company, but even those folks are having difficulty relocating because we had a mass migration of over 30,000 people from both Paradise and Miguelia into the Chico area, and it's very difficult 
to find a place to hook up an RV, to find a rental, uh, or to uh, purchase a home or any such thing because you have 30,000 people invading a town of about 85,000 and uh, it was quickly filled up. Many people are just on escape mode going wherever they can so that they can find at least temporary shelter and then returning. Uh, people who are interested in really helping us, uh, the, the main types of help that we need are gift cards because we don't even have a place to store uh, goods that people might send. Um, and so on our website, which is stmparadise.org, they can go to that site and they can make contributions. It tells them where they can send checks or where they can make a credit card donation. That's been working fairly well. That'll allow us in turn to redirect those donations to the people most in need. Yeah, so w would you say you'd prefer the, the cash gifts or, or the gift cards to actual items yeah, that people might yeah, have? Definitely. Well, like we, we, we've had many calls uh, that are Christmas related and then people are asking us, oh, can we send toys to the uh, your needy children? And there are responses. Most of those, those children at this point just need basic clothes, underwear and stuff and such. Uh, toys are a second thought. If they, if we have uh, gift cards, that enables the parents to um, go shopping with the child to, to find an appropriate gift or uh, basic needs that they, ha they have to take care of. That's why they really the gift cards have been a, a great help in that regard. It's a desperation effort with 80% of the people burned out. It's it's a Hiroshima kind of a situation up there. It's it's really grim. Well, Jim, thank you very much again for speaking with me and be assured of our prayers uh, from here at CNA Newsroom and from our listeners. And uh, we'll continue to monitor the situation in California. So thank you again for your time. God bless you. With me right now is Michelle LaRosa, CNA's Managing Editor and a new voice on the podcast. Michelle, thanks for coming on CNA Newsroom today. Yeah, thanks, J.D. It's great to be here. And here um, with us connected vis-a-vis uh, -vis the internet and certain apps that we use is our DC Editor, Ed Condon. Ed, thanks for being here as well. Always a pleasure. Guys, I want to talk about the sexual abuse crisis because we are entering into basically the sixth month of the sexual abuse crisis. It started in June with the Archbishop McCarrick scandal and then the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and then the Vigano letter and then the resignation of Bishop Michael Bransfield and so many different twists and turns that brought us to the Baltimore let meeting of the bishops and, and now pass that on the other side of it, waiting for this meeting in February uh, at the Vatican. And I think a lot of Catholics are just sort of wondering, like, what, what is going on? Where do things stand? What are the bishops up to and w what's coming next? In many respects, things have moved on a great deal in the last six months. And at the same time, a lot hasn't changed at all. Um, in the case of former Cardinal, now just Archbishop McCarrick, um, the situation has moved on a lot and in a sense stalled. Uh, he's resigned from the College of Cardinals. He's been sent to live a life of prayer and penance in a Kansas monastery, pending the outcome of a canonical process being held in Rome. But what progress that process is making, what form that process is taking, we don't know. When we can expect it to wrap up, we don't know. Um, and what the eventual result of that will be is we can only guess at. Uh, in the same way, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report came out, and then we've seen that followed up by the announcement of a lot of similar investigations in different states. I think we're up to now 15 individual states that are holding similar investigations. And now we're looking at possible federal action, too. 
Um, but at the same time, the church doesn't seem to have been able to construct a, a coherent institutional response to all of these scandals. And while they struggle for what you called earlier this week, the, uh, the paralysis of analysis, um, the scandal keeps mutating and developing. Yeah, I find myself wondering just what's going what's gonna to happen next, what we're looking towards. It's, I think it's hard to say because, you know, at, at the bishops' conference meeting a couple of weeks ago, the Vatican asked that the bishops delay their voting on measures that they had come prepared to take a vote on in terms of resolution and concrete changes. So I think a lot of it is perhaps up to individual bishops and, you know, what individually they can do and what they can't do. And then at the same time, you have, you know, allegations that are continuing to come out. Just recently, Cardinal DiNardo, the president of the bishops' conference, uh, there are claims that he allowed two priests to remain in ministry despite accusations. And, of course, he says that those accusations, that they were not credible. Um, and I think part of part of the challenge here is figuring out how do we, how does the church respond in a language that people understand? Because some people were pretty upset when he said they weren't credible allegations, that he was maybe being dismissive or insensitive. But that actually had meaning in just the language that church officials are using. They're still trying to navigate all of this as they try to regain trust. Yeah, one thing with that, with that trust piece is I think a, a lot of Catholics, a lot of our readers are saying all the time that they, they just don't know who to trust. And, and, and these are Catholics who practice the faith, who go to Mass, who, who pray the rosary with their families, who try to live the teachings of the church, and suddenly they feel like they're just not sure who or what to trust. Why do you think that's happening, and like, what do you, what do you think is going to change that? Well, I think part of the problem is that the bishops themselves don't trust themselves or each other very much. Um, in some cases, it's because part of the fallout of the McCarrick scandal has been that bishops are sort of looking at other dioceses in the area and going, well, I don't know what's necessarily going on there, or at least... Um, perhaps I don't know it as well as I think I do, but in in the same in a different way, um, bishops I think aren't trusting their own instincts on this anymore. That you know, as we've seen bodies like the U.S. Bishops Conference and also the different Roman congregations struggle to come up with a sort of universalist approach to responding to the crisis. Individual bishops in their diocese aren't trusting their own instincts to sort of move ahead on their own and institute any new reforms in their own diocese, even though they've got the authority to do so. Everyone's sort of waiting to see someone else take the lead. And I think that's resulting in, in everyone having this sort of paralysis that's going on. And it, that's feeding down into the faithful and the pews who are, who are seeing really their leaders not know how to respond. And that's not something that inspires confidence. I've seen a lot of laity calling for a greater lay response, that the laity need to be involved in solving this problem. But nobody's quite sure what is that going to look like. And is that something that the laity even have the authority to do on their own? Is that something that the bishops would have to give them the authority to do? It's not really going to solve the problem to say we're going to have the laity do this simply because they are laity if they're not qualified to do some of these things. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, people are discontent, but it's not clear what the solution is going to be from the bishops, from the Vatican, um, from the laity, from anybody at this point. The other thing for me with the lay thing is I, I think that lay collaboration is really important, Michelle, you're right. But there, there's also the importance, I think, of the role of, of bishops themselves, of, of exercising their, their spiritual fatherhood in a way that, is, that, that feels to people like it's leading, to see that leadership that says these kinds of things, sexual coercion, sexual abuse, cover-ups, these kinds of things are just not acceptable for our, our community. You know, there were, there were these different proposals. Ed, I know you wrote about these quite a bit during the Bishop's Conference and right after the the World Supich proposal that they had reportedly presented, that they had reportedly written, and um, a counter-proposal. What's the status of those? 
Well, so there are really two proposals that are being actively considered at the level of the U.S. Bishops Conference. The first is sort of the official response or proposal of the U.S. Bishops, which was sort of managed and presented and set out ahead both to Rome and to the bishops of the U.S. Um, before Baltimore, which proposed a, an independent national investigative body led by lay people, which would handle all accusations against bishops, either like personal misconduct or mishandling of other accusations for clergy in their diocese. Um, over the course of the the assembly in Baltimore, um, Cardinal Supich presented a, a sort of counterproposal, which was based more on the model of metropolitan archbishops having special responsibility, and in this case, an expanded oversight role um, and handling accusations that are made against their suffragan bishops in their territory. Now, both of these plans have got their merits. Both of them have got uh, things that are wrong with them and questions that sort of immediately jump out at people about them. Um, but since the bishops were prevented from coming to any sort of binding resolution at the end of the conference, uh, both have now been handed over to a sort of special task force commissioned by the USCCB, uh, made up of the past presidents of the conference. So Cardinal Dolan of New York, Archbishop Gregory of Atlanta, and Archbishop Kurtz of Louisville. Um, and they're going to sort of develop both of these proposals in tandem, in more detail, sort of flesh out some of the pros and cons for both, and they'll present back to the U.S. bishops the next time they meet. We don't know when exactly that's going to be. You know, we know it's going to be after February because they can't do anything before that. But it's sort of yet to be decided whether they'll move forward their next meeting, which was supposed to be held in June. And, and what about for the February meeting? Like, what's going to be on the agenda for that? Well, we don't really know what's going to be on the agenda beyond the sort of headline world's um, bishops' conference heads talking about how to respond to the sexual abuse crisis. But one thing's for sure, which is that nobody... Um, Nobody arrives in Rome for a meeting called by the Pope with a blank sheet of paper in front of it. Rome's going to have its own ideas, whether those come directly from Pope Francis or whether those are, you know, originated within the different congregations in, in the Vatican. We'll see. But certainly Rome is going to have something for them to start or discuss when they arrive. And I think a lot of these bishops, particularly the ones attending from the United States, are going to be bringing their own ideas with them. Uh, I think what will be most interesting to see ahead of February is as these ideas start to bubble to the surface, either here or in Rome or in other parts of the world, and see if there's a harmony emerging or if there's, you know, a, a back and forth that ends up happening. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, that this, this meeting in February, that's not going to be the final stage in this process. There's not going to be, um, you know, a clear solution. Okay, here are the new policies. Everything's solved. You know, that's really kind of one more step in the process. And in one sense, it's kind of the beginning of a process. Um, the, the more globally this is handled, the longer it's going to take. It's not something that's going to be resolved after that meeting. So for a lot of the faithful, it is going to be more waiting. No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Michelle. But I think one of the one of the opportunities presented by the fact that it's going to take a long time for the church to come up with any kind of universal response to this crisis is it creates a space for diocesan bishops to start acting in their own diocese and to try things out, to use their own best judgment, to respond to local circumstances. And then how these um, how these measures that they may choose to take in their own diocese work and play out can be something that really constructively informs a more universalist approach later on, and at the same time allows there to be a sort of rolling response as things carry on. One of the things that struck me is, you know, a lot of American bishops have said they're going to release the names of all credibly accused priests in their diocese. I mean, that's an important step. It's, you know, it's definitely a, a move towards uh, more full transparency, but really all that's doing is making the scale of the problem more clear. We need to start seeing um, 
leadership on answers. I'm glad you said that because I think it's going to be important for us to cover in the months to come what individual diocesan bishops are doing in this country and and around the world. So that's that's going to be something for us to look for and something for you to look for at catholicnewsagency.com. Michelle, making your CNA Newsroom debut. I'm so glad you're on the podcast, and I hope we have you on the podcast more often. And Ed, you are also here. Thanks, J.D. Always a pleasure. Ed, always tolerable. Thank you both. Lovely to talk to you. This week, we talked about the ongoing sexual abuse crisis in the church. We talked about people picking up the pieces of their lives in California. And we talked about the life and death of the late Bishop Morlino. Kind of a downer episode. But I think one thing I took away from it is something that William mentioned to us about Bishop Morlino, his enduring faith in the church, that witness of being able to return to the church, the sacrament of salvation for hope and for renewal and for healing. So many of us right now, I think, need that hope, renewal, the promise of Christ that's found in the church. So that's where I'll be turning, and that's what I took away from this episode. But next week, I promise we're going to talk about Disney princesses and canon law in a very special segment we're calling Disney princesses and canon law. That's this week's episode of CNA Newsroom. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and share us with your friends and family. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency and EWTN News Outlet. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, and next week, Disney Princess and Canon Law expert, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Vike and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to William Yallily, to Jim Collins, to our producers and staff here at CNA, and to you for listening. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to CNA Newsroom. <laughs>